Matthew chapter 6. Let me kind of catch us up. Um, As we move through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here, we're trying to follow sort of the logical or rhetorical flow of this sermon. Even though we're taking it chunk by chunk, week by week, for Jesus, this was one sermon that was delivered really at one time or at least something that looked a lot like this. And so we started uh, several weeks ago with the Beatitudes. Jesus begins the sermon with pronouncing blessing, that God is with you. Those who are struggling in their faith, those who are ignored, those who are outcast, be blessed. God is with you. And then from there, in verse 13 of chapter 5, he moves to this conversation about their new identity. That as the blessed people of God, you are also called to be a blessing to the nations. To continue on in the covenant that God has always had with his people. That I will bless you and make you a blessing. And so he uses the metaphor of the salt of the earth and the light of the world to describe the missional identity of his kingdom community. We are blessed to be a blessing. And then in verse 17 of chapter 5, he starts this new section where he comes to to speak about authority. So as the blessed, blessing people of God, how are we to order our lives? Who gets to have a say over how we live together and, and how we're going to represent God to the nations? And so he brings it all back to the scriptures. And he says, I'm not here to abolish the scriptures or to get rid of what we would call the Old Testament. He says, I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to complete the scriptures. I'm here to show you how they paved the way for me, Jesus would say, for me to come and to carry out God's ultimate plan of rescue and reconciliation within the world. And so the scriptures are to be central to the lives of Christ's followers. And then from there, he goes on through the remainder of chapter 5 and gives six commands. Here's how um, the scriptures are to inform the way that Jesus' disciples live. And so we didn't get to spend a lot of time on each of these, but I'm going to run through them real quickly just so we can get the flow of how Jesus says, no, here's what it looks like to trust the authority of the scripture. So the first thing in that first little section, verses 17 through 20, Jesus commands his disciples to love the scriptures and to let God's word have authority over our lives. Okay, so this is Jesus speaking in the imperative. This is what it means to live as my people in the world. In the next section, he moves on to this conversation uh, about, about love and about um, essentially saying, hey, it's great that nobody, you guys aren't murdering each other, but do you actually love one another? So Jesus commands his disciples to love others and live at peace with them, especially our fellow disciples. Okay, summarize the next section, starting in verse 27. He said, Jesus commands his disciples to honor God with our sexuality and to be sexually pure with our minds and with our bodies. And this is a startling realization for many of us that at the heart of Jesus' famous teachings on his moral vision for what his people uh, in their shared life would look like, it doesn't just have to do with issues that we would consider justice issues or ethics issues or things like that, but apparently Jesus also has something to say about our bodies and who we sleep with and how we view one another um, within our sexuality. He moves on in verse 31. Jesus commands his disciples to honor God in our marriages and to faithfully love our spouses. So Jesus is pro-marriage, and he has this 
understanding somehow that the way we relate to one another in the covenant of marriage actually has so much to do with the, our calling to be the blessed blessing people of God in the world. Uh, it moves on in verse 33. Jesus commands his disciples to always speak the truth and to live lives of integrity. So this is part of his vision for his disciples, that they would be people who keep their word, who are trustworthy and speak the truth. Moving on in verse 38, Jesus commands his disciples to trust the justice of God and to not pay others back when they wrong us. This is a huge, huge lesson at the center of this sermon. He's saying, instead of trying to do the old eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing, we, we trust that God is good and God is sovereign and God is in control. And so that frees us up to forgive and to love others even uh, when they've hurt us. And then finally, at the end of uh, chapter 5, where Reuben Reyes led us last week, Jesus commands his disciples to love our enemies and to pray for those who mistreat us. Okay, So in chapter 5, we have these six commands. And Jesus goes, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what uh, I want you guys to prioritize within your life. So overall, Jesus is telling his disciples, make it your highest priority to be more like me. Because all these commands, they may sound fairly harsh and fairly heavy to our ears at times until we realize Jesus is quite literally saying, this is who I am and this is how I've modeled righteousness for you. So live like I do. Love like I do. Pursue purity. Pursue to honor God with your body in all these different ways. Jesus says, I am calling you to live a righteous life. And when we say righteous, we mean right relationships, right relationship with God, self, others, the rest of creation, the life that God intended for us to live. Okay, so that's the emphasis of chapter five. Here is a vision for righteousness. Then today, as we come into chapter six, Jesus starts a new section of the sermon and he starts it with a warning. He says, be careful in verse one. So he sets up this whole thing by saying, so as you pursue this life of righteousness, there's a warning. There's something you need to be cautious about. And what he warns them is that it's possible to pursue a righteous life, but do it in the wrong way. It's possible to live rightly with the wrong reasons. So he, needs, he commands his followers now to be careful, to pay attention that we're not just doing the right stuff, but that it's also coming from the right place within us. Okay, I know this is hard for us to imagine, but there was a day when some of Jesus' followers had a reputation for being hypocrites. I know that's crazy to think about, but there was a time when Christians had a reputation for being hypocrites. And thankfully, we don't have to deal with that anymore, but what's a hypocrite? Well, it's not actually originally a pejorative term in general. A hypocrite is simply an actor, 
in that day, a stage actor, right? A hypocrite was somebody who would get on the stage and perform in character, pretending to be somebody else. So that's not a bad thing. We love actors and movies and all that kind of stuff today. And so when Jesus is looking for the right metaphor to describe what it looks like to do the right things for the wrong reasons, he latches on to this metaphor from community and says, so many people are hypocrites when it comes to practicing their faith. They're actors. They're pretenders. To be a hypocrite is to wear a mask, to pretend to be something that you're not. And so a hypocrite isn't a bad thing in general, but when it comes to practicing our faith, Jesus is saying there's this thing that's, that's basically pretending, and it's BS righteousness. So, of course, this still shows up in our world all the time today, doesn't it? Like, in fact, this is one of the main things that many people in our culture, when they think about Christianity, this is one of the first things that comes to their minds. In fact, Gabe Lyons did a study a number of years ago in the book on Christian that surveyed the emerging generation, young adults in America, and asked them, what do you think of Christians? And 85% of young people in America think of Christians as hypocrites. That means when you're out at work or out in the town or wherever, and you're meeting somebody and they come to associate you with a, as a Christian, this is one of the very first things that they will assume about us, is that we are hypocrites. And so this sermon is a warning. This is Jesus saying, be careful, watch out, pay attention, quit trying to look good, and maybe start trying to actually be good. Now, here's what's interesting. I think that there's actually um, a question to be asked whether Jesus is partly to blame for this phenomenon. Because go back to the last verse of Matthew chapter 5. And of course, I don't really mean that. But listen, Matthew chapter 5, here's how he closes. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Go do that. Right? So, um, yeah, this is how the sermon goes. So now that we've talked about murder and adultery and divorce and all that, if I just had to sum it up, guys, just be perfect, all right? You know, God's perfect, so why don't you go ahead and be perfect, right? Um, and then I'm like, well, gosh, no wonder Jesus' followers become hypocrites. No wonder we're accused of pretending to be something that we're actually not. If that's what we're supposed to be is perfect, then yeah, that's my only shot. Like I'm not actually perfect, I just pretend to be and we call that Christianity. Now, let me just take a moment because I'm perplexed by this passage. I'm sure many of you are as well. We know that the Orthodox Christian teaching on human perfection uh, doesn't quite jive with what Jesus appears to be saying here. Is he truly demanding or expecting that we would achieve moral perfection in this life? Uh, I think we would understand that must not be, be what he's talking about. And so this is one of those places where it's so important to pay attention to the context, right? If you just pull Matthew 5:48 out of nowhere and go, Jesus says be perfect, so that's what we're doing, um, you're not going to get the idea. But where is he 
Where is he in his flow, in his train of thought? Well, he's in a conversation that we were in last week about loving your enemies. He's in a conversation about what is love. And we know that it's more than just a feeling or an emotional attachment or something like that. And he goes, the way that the world loves is that we love those who love us. Verse 46, he goes, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? So if we think that love in God's perception is just loving those who love us, loving those that are easy to love, loving those that are part of our group or our tribe or our people, he's going, that's imperfect love. That's incomplete love. And so the idea of perfection isn't so much of moral perfection as it is of completion, of wholeness, of maturity. So he goes, the world's way of love is imperfect, incomplete, immature. It only loves those who love it back. But he goes, the Father's way of loving is a love that's whole, that's complete, that's perfect, that God doesn't just love those who love him. He loves everyone, including those who hate him and those who are his enemies. That's love. That's perfect, complete, whole, mature love. And Jesus says, so be perfect, therefore, as not just God, but your heavenly Father is perfect. That inclusive, accepting, unconditional love that our Father has shown towards us in Christ, that's perfect love. And Jesus goes, So don't let your love be incomplete or immature. Let your love be that big that it would be so big that you would even love your enemies as well. Does that make sense? Does that help? Good. So so then we have this whole thing about hypocrisy and all this kind of stuff. And I want to pause and just speak for a moment for those of you that are among that 85% that would say, yeah, Christians are hypocrites. For those of you that share that observation and it's troubling to you. For those that feel like, yeah, I, I really am compelled by the person of Jesus. I'm really drawn to this vision of the gospel and the kingdom and the flourishing and reconciliation of all things. But man, Christians... Christians are hard for me. Church is hard for me. Institutionalized religion or whatever we would want to call it. Like, I like Jesus, but I don't like that stuff because of the judgment, because of the hypocrisy. This is now a conversation I'm finding myself in on a very regular basis. Every week, at least once or twice, I'm talking with people that are going, yeah, I just, the church, man. Christians, this thing that I've grown up in and all the pressure, all the judgment, all the hypocrisy, all the faking it. And um, for those of you that struggle with the reality of hypocrisy within the church, my answer isn't to say, oh, it's not that bad. It's not what you think. My answer is to say, yeah, it's true. And Jesus had a problem with it too that he started this whole observation. He's the one who goes to great lengths, not just in this passage, but all throughout his ministry, to call out hypocrisy where he sees it, 
to call out BS faith, to call out those who are faking it and carrying out their good works and righteousness for the approval of man. Jesus makes it very clear that, yes, that is going to happen. And he makes it very clear that his disciples aren't to allow it or accept it or accommodate it, but that we will always must be living in tension with it, aware of that tendency within our community and within ourselves as well. So Jesus acknowledges the existence of hypocritical faith, but listen to me, he doesn't ever allow it to be a valid excuse to disassociate from himself. He's not going to let you off the hook for saying, yeah, Christians are hypocrites, so I'm out. He's going, no. That is not a legit excuse. But instead, he says, okay, it exists, so don't be like them. This is the language he uses repeatedly. Yeah, there's hypocrites out there. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. And so he acknowledges that there will be this reality. But how foolish would we be to let those people come between us and Christ? So I heard somebody once say that if there's a hypocrite standing between you and Jesus, then they're closer to him than you are. Right? Don't allow the brokenness, the flawed nature of other Christians to be the reason that you would turn away from him. So, what, what's he saying then? There is the reality of hypocrisy. It is something that we're going to struggle with within our church, within ourselves. And so one answer would be, well, all these practices of the faith, all the ways that we would publicly demonstrate or identify ourselves as followers of Jesus. He gives us three in, these, in this passage. The first is giving to the needy, which has to do with not just almsgiving in the sense that we would think of dropping a quarter in, in somebody's can or something like that, but it's a more robust idea of really doing justice, of caring for the poor, of crying out on behalf of the oppressed, of suffering with the vulnerable. So uh, the places where we're serving, we're giving, we're loving, we're providing for those in need, Jesus says it's, there's hypocrites in that space. And then he moves the conversation towards prayer, towards our dialogue, our conversation, our ongoing uh, interaction with God in prayer. He's going, uh, it's easy to do that um, as a hypocrite. And do it for the wrong reasons. And then in verse 16, he moves on to fasting. Where he goes, so some people fast and make a big deal about it and show themselves as being all holy and righteous. And they're doing that for the wrong reasons too. So he names three practices of the faith um, of giving, prayer, and fasting. And he goes, there's hypocrites in all of those. And so he warns against doing these things for the wrong reasons. Now, I want to make sure we understand Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying don't pursue righteousness. He's not saying don't give to the needy or don't pray or don't fast. But in fact, I think he's assuming the exact opposite. And, and notice the language in verse 2. It's not if you give, it's when you give to the needy. 
when you give. Jesus is assuming his followers are going to be doing the work of justice, that we are going to be generous, that we are going to be compassionate, that we are going to be reorienting our lives in order that others can benefit. So when you give, verse 2, and then he says again in verse 3, when you give to the needy. And then moving on to verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Verse 6, but when you pray. And verse 7, and when you pray. Do you see this? Over and over again. So the answer can't be, well, don't give to the needy because maybe you're doing it wrong. Or don't pray because maybe you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Moving on to verse 16, when you fast. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Verse 17, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. So I just want to make sure that we see this. The answer to the potential reality of hypocrisy within our community or within ourselves can't be that we abstain from doing good works of righteousness. The answer is, well, I don't know if I'm doing for this for the right reasons, so I'm not going to give to the poor. Or I don't know if my heart's totally pure, so I'm not going to pray. Or I don't know if it's coming from the right place, so I'm not going to fast. Jesus isn't saying that. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, we keep doing it, but we do it by paying attention to our motivations and to our affections. And so here's the basic flow in all three of these, in giving, in praying, and fasting. It goes like this. There's a kind of a four-step little dance. Next slide. He says, here's how false disciples practice righteousness. So he does this with giving. He does this with prayer. does it with fasting. False disciples of me will do it this way, to be seen, to be noticed, to gain the approval and admiration of others. And then he says, and then here's their reward in all three cases. He goes, this is what they get. Whoever's impressed in the room, they get, they get that. Whoever notices, that's what they get. And then he goes, but here's how true disciples practice righteousness. So here's the false way. Here's the true way. Here's how I actually want you to give to the poor, to pray to your father, to practice the discipline of fasting. And if you will do that, then he says, here's your reward. Here's your reward. And so again, the difference between Jesus' true and false disciples isn't that true disciples give, pray, and fast, and false disciples don't. Jesus says that false disciples or hypocrites do all those things too. The difference is how they do it and why they do it and who's, who they are looking for as their reward. And he basically says, if you are practicing this kind of righteousness simply to gain the approval and the reward of the acceptance or admiration or respect of the people around you, then he goes, you've gotten your reward in full. That's all you're going to get is man's empty praise. But then he goes, if you give, if you pray, And if you fast, not worrying about who's watching or what they're thinking about you, but you're doing it as an act of love for your Father in heaven, you can know that he sees you. He notices you. 
and what he thinks of you is the only thing that matters. So Jesus is tapping into a very deep universal reality regarding humanity. And it's the thing that I think we would most understand as shame, right? Shame is that sense that there is something wrong with me, that I am not the person I ought to be. And this isn't a uniquely Christian experience, although we're super good at it. Every human has this sense. Guilt is when I did something wrong. I did something bad. Shame is I, there is something wrong with me. I am bad. And so we come into the world broken and affected by sin as shame, shameful people that are striving to be noticed, to be validated, to be loved, and to be accepted. This happened in the garden, the first story of Adam and Eve falling away from the covenant life that God had given them. And what's the first thing they do? They cover themselves. They hide from God. They hide from one another. They experience this reality of shame for the first time in the story, in this Edenic shame has been haunting us ever since. And so Jesus is tapping deeply into this thing. We all need a way to deal with the shame that we feel. We need a way to be validated, to be accepted, to be affirmed. We need someone or something to say that we are all right. So as a parent... Jen and I, on a very regular basis, I would say dozens of times a day, we hear this phrase from our kids. Watch me. Watch me. Watch me ride my bike. Watch me hit this ball. Watch me write my name. Watch me paint this picture. Watch what I can do. Watch my handspring. Watch my somersault. Look what I made. Look at this drawing I did. Look, I peed. Watch me. Parents, you recognize this. This is our kids going, it, it, it matters to me that you notice, that you affirm, that you celebrate, that you validate me and my existence. Daddy, watch me. And as we get older, rarely will we actually say those same words, but they continue to shape our lives, don't they? Watch me graduate. Watch me get a job. Watch me get a promotion. Watch me make a ton of money. Watch me buy a sweet new ride. Watch me buy a huge new house. Watch my kids succeed and excel. Watch me get the, live the good life. Watch where I go on vacation. Look at all I've done. Look at how I look. Look at how I dress. Look at how I live. Watch me. For so many of us, this shapes the entire trajectory of our lives. This sense that we need to be noticed, validated, affirmed. And what are we doing? We are seeking the reward of the approval of the world we live in. We are believing that our happiness our joy, our meaning and purpose can only be found when the world is watching and impressed 
by us. And so here's what's interesting. Is the desire to be noticed, to be accepted, to be approved, to be loved, is that a sinful desire? There are certain religious teachings in the world, particularly in the East, that would say, yes, the desire for acceptance and approval and love and affirmation is a sinful or broken desire in and of itself, and so we should try to kill it. We should try to not let that desire have a place in our lives. But I actually don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think he's acknowledging that, yes, as humans, there is a desire for love, for acceptance, for approval. It's not a sinful desire, so he's not trying to say you need to eliminate the desire for approval. But he's redirecting it. And saying, yeah, if you want to earn the respect, admiration, and approval of your friends, neighbors, coworkers, family, whatever, go ahead and do that. But it's not actually going to heal your broken heart. It's not going to fill the void in your soul. I think Jesus is teaching that we were made to be noticed by God. I think our kids remind us when they say, Mommy, Daddy, watch me. That this is part of how God has wired us for a craving, a longing, a hunger, and a thirst that he would see us, that he would know us, that he would affirm us and validate us. We are made to be noticed by our Father. And instead of noticed, you could simply say rewarded by our Father in heaven. And Jesus is saying here that that desire to be noticed can be abused, it can be misdirected, it can become perverted, and it can become BS if we don't keep an eye on it. When we try to get what we need in our souls through the approval of men, it's never going to work. But to practice our righteousness, to live out our faith, to follow Jesus, to love God, to love others as we love ourselves, not to gain some social standing within whatever religious context we find ourselves, but simply because we know that God's watching is a return to this innocent beauty of my little kid going, watch me, Daddy. So I remember at one point, uh, probably 14 or 15 years old, uh, part of a Christian youth group that went on a retreat where there were a bunch of other students from all around the Northwest. And they made it clear at the beginning of the retreat that at the end of the weekend, they were going to be giving awards for essentially those high schoolers that modeled exemplary Christian faith throughout the course of the weekend. And I'm like, I got this. So... Anytime there was a chance to pray out loud, I'm praying. Anytime there's a chance to raise your hands and worship and make yourself look really holy and whatever, I was doing it. I carried my Bible with me for four straight days, even like going to lunch or going to the bathroom. Like, I'm going to win that award, right? And I was 14, 15, and just like, okay, I guess this is how we do it. Um, So I'm going to do all the good Christian stuff. And then you get to the end of the retreat, and they, they come up on stage and, and go, okay, we've, everybody's voted 
All the other students have voted who's the best Christian here this weekend. And I'm like, drum roll, and basically up out of my seat before they call some other guy's name. Right? (laughs) And that guy, he wasn't raising his hands or praying fancy or anything. And all he did was just hang out, and I'm still mad at him to this day. (laughs) Um, That is so messed up, is it not? Um, I'm... Even if I had one, my soul would be in a worse place than it is today. Um, by the way, I, I really mean this. I've been a pastor for 20 years now and have been around a lot of different churches, children's ministries, youth ministries. When it comes to our youth ministry here at Antioch, I am confident that our students are going to have very little they need to unlearn when they, when they come out of this program. I trust Jarrell and his team so deeply, and I am so thankful that there is no weird stuff like I went through um, going on at this group, and I really do celebrate that. So give him money later today if you um... Um, Very few of us have ever actually entered that kind of contest that I was in in high school. But if we've been around church or religion uh, long enough, We know that contest is always kind of going beneath the surface, even though we never actually talk about it. And so, Jesus seems to be pretty straightforward in his solution to these problems. He acknowledges the reality of hypocrisy. He warns us that this is something we always need to be on guard against. This is something we always need to pay attention to. And he's like, yeah, there's going to be hypocrites. And his answer is, so don't be one. Don't be like them. Don't do what they do. Which, again, sounds kind of like, yeah, be perfect, just like God's perfect. But how does this happen? How could Jesus actually believe that we would be equipped to live what we might call an authentic Christian life? Pursuing righteousness and giving generously to the poor and praying intimately with the Father and fasting passionately uh, as as an act of discipline. And he's actually saying this can come from a good, healthy, and complete or perfect place within you. Well, the opportunity is before us simply to practice. And he actually gives us three practical ways to do that. The answer isn't, don't do that stuff. The answer is, all right, give to the poor and don't let anybody see it. Don't tweet it. Don't Instagram it. Don't put it on Facebook. Don't tell it as like a pseudo prayer request in your small group meeting. Just pray for this person that I really gave a lot to this week, right? <laughs> don't let your left hand know what you're... This is what he says. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to need some practice. So, here's my charge, Antioch. This week, bless somebody in need and don't tell anybody. Look for a way to love someone, to meet a need in the life of someone around you, and don't tell anyone. Okay? Moves on to prayer. He's going, if the only time you ever pray is when other people are listening, you're a hypocrite. If you're praying in public and praying with others, but you aren't praying in private, then you're pretending. 
So again, the answer isn't to not pray in public. It's to find some time and pray. And don't tell anybody. In private. The fasting one's different because he assumes his crowd is fasting. I assume you don't. And we need to take a look at that. This was part of Jesus' life and part of his rhythm and spirituality. He's going, if you're going to fast or if you're going to deprive yourself, if you're going to discipline yourself, if you're going to say no to some comfort or some temptation or some luxury, he goes, do that and don't make a big deal. Don't tell others. Don't show others. Don't go around showing everybody how disciplined and devout and religious and whatever you are. It's like, just do it before God. And the challenge that he puts out there is, if you will do these things, and you will incorporate these rhythms and practices into your life, he goes, I promise you that the reward that you get is going to satisfy your soul. That your father who loves you with a perfect love, who knows you, who sees you, his pleasure in you will be more than enough. And so for us, um, I don't know about you, I have a lot of places where I could be charged with hypocrisy in my life. And if you're not able to identify one right now, maybe it's not giving, praying, or fasting, let me ask you this. Where is a place in your life where you're maintaining the image that you're doing better than you actually are? Is there anywhere anywhere in your life, any part of yourself, that you're pretending to be doing better than you actually are? And Jesus would say, that's hypocrisy. And so the answer is to turn in that towards God. And to allow him to see you and to notice you. And so every week we come to this table of this bread and this cup as a reminder to remember that God has given himself to us through Jesus. And he's invited us to share with Christ in his life. And as we come to this table, even this we're aware of could be something that in this environment would be like, hey, look at me, I'm taking communion. I've got all my stuff together. I'm doing this for some other reason. And I would say this is an opportunity for us to come and to display that the only reason we come to this table is because we recognize our own hypocrisy, our own brokenness, our own tendency to want to earn the approval of man. And so at this table, we say, none of that works for me. All of that's killing me. Jesus, you are everything that my broken heart needs. So will you stand with me? And uh, we'll respond in worship. Father, you have loved us with a perfect love. Though we were once your enemies and far from you, you've drawn near to us and you have become one of us in Jesus. And you've invited us to a life united with him 
so that his standing is now our standing, that his record is now our record, and even his motivation has been attributed to us as well. And so I'm convinced, God, that the only way we can ever be free from striving to earn the approval of humanity is by recognizing that you have already noticed us and have already approved of us and already loved us just as we are today. That we are free from needing that verdict because it's already been given. And we are in Christ and you love us in him. And so this morning we come in gratitude and celebration and faith. We come needing to be filled and affirmed by you. And that's what this table reminds us of. So meet us here today, God. Move deeply in our lives. And by the power of the Spirit, would you enable us to practice our righteousness before you and you alone. For your glory, in Jesus' name.